0: Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now, your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering.
1: Hey, hi. I'm Dr. Yosef. I'm a psychiatrist uh, and um, joined here today with Nicole. We work together and we actually help people with protracted withdrawal injury. We help people with drug tapers. And. The topic of today is going to be the treatment of protracted withdrawal, uh, which is really complicated, because it is a condition where there is no quick fix, there is no drug that will help anyone go through this. It is best thought of as a well, at least from my perspective, as a type of brain injury a neurological injury that runs its course. And so talking about treatment in some ways, doesn't really make sense. But There is a treatment for it, and there is something that we've um, seen over time, and that is learning how to live with, in many times, a lot of suffering and a lot of pain because the sooner you can learn to live with protracted withdrawal, it actually becomes less frightening um, and the suffering goes down. And so we're going to talk today about Nicole's journey with protracted withdrawal and then what we've learned by... Helping other people through this journey, so um, let's let's get into it. Nicole, thanks again for coming coming on. I uh, I think it would be great if you could just so people know about you. Just briefly recap your story. You know what what did you go through? And I know you're still suffering, and maybe you can end it with just um, where you're at now.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so thanks for having me, Yosef. Yeah, my name is Nicole Lamberson, and um, I trained as a physician assistant, and I was actually working as a PA when I accepted a prescription for Xanax. I quickly developed uh, dose withdrawal problems and tolerance to it, but I didn't know that that's what it was at the time, and so I started seeing a psychiatrist and um, became a victim of polypharmacy, just sort of, you know, one drug to treat the symptoms of the adverse effects of another, until I was on six psychiatric medications at the same time. Um, two of them were benzos. I was also on a sleeping pill. Um, rimeron Adderall, and Seroquel was my uh, combination. I figured out uh, after like five years of being on that cocktail that the drugs were probably the culprit of what was happening to me. I, you know, had by that point, I was intolerant so bad and having so many adverse drug effects that I um, was agoraphobic. I was struggling to go to work every day. I had all kinds of, you know, physical Ailments like rashes and um, weird, you know, weird things developing. And uh, I read an article actually by another survivor of benzodiazepines online and sort of put the pieces together. Then I entered into a detox program because I didn't know at the time about safe tapering um, off of psychiatric medications. And um, I, that basically started a horrific uh, withdrawal syndrome that persists to date and um, became protracted. So I went to that detox center in 2010. um, And so I've dealt with protracted withdrawal since 2010 and it's 2023.
1: Yes. So Nicole, I know you were really sick, um, at different stages through this. Could you maybe just provide like an outline so people have an idea of how bad it got, uh, especially at the beginning, and then maybe the, the, the stages of recovery, or the, the stages of kind of pain that, that have passed to where you are now?
0: Mm-hmm. So, the first year, I was really terrible. I mean, I had akathisia. I paced until my feet bled. I was acutely suicidal and actually had a suicide attempt that landed me in the ICU. Um, It was so bad in the first year that I actually reinstated some Valium to sort of um, try to pull me out of the withdrawal syndrome. And it worked enough to essentially keep me alive, but it didn't fix the protracted injury. I mean, I I never felt like myself again. It just sort of took the edge off enough to where I could hang on. And then over 18 months or so, I tapered myself off of that small bit of Valium and then was on nothing after that. Um. I was so ill that I developed bed sores. I had um like dreadlocks in my hair from laying on a pillow for so long and just rubbing my hair up against fabric. I you know couldn't care for myself in like the most basic of ways. I think it was like a year before I could even do laundry like I had to hire a laundry service to do everything for me. Um, I would say, like, the first seven or eight years was probably, like, the worst of it. And right around, like, seven or eight years is when I started to sort of get more access to the world back as far as, like, being able to go for walks, like, physically and, like, go out of the house and, like, maybe go to a restaurant or be with my family more but the first like seven or eight years, I was solely mostly alone in an apartment by myself.
1: And going back to, you know, seven or eight years, I mean, it's, it's such a long period of time. And you mentioned that you had a suicide attempt Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Can you, what was your psychology like at the time? I mean, You've you've gone through a suicide attempt and then you're kind of hanging on. It sounds like the suffering is still, I mean, severe if you're pretty much by yourself in your room, in your bed Mm -hmm. with dreads. What was it like coming to terms with that and then making it through that period?
0: I think in the beginning, I was just like filled with rage and anger at the injustice of it all, like really pissed. and just sort of, like, pushing back a lot against um, just sort of accepting what had happened. Um, you know, my, my focus was just, like, ruminating about, like, what the psychiatrist had done to me and how unfair it was and uh, what I had lost, you know. And I quickly kind of realized that that was actually making me sicker. It wasn't really serving me and it certainly wasn't solving the problem, which was the suffering. Um, and so I kind of just realized like I was going to have to, you know, stop pushing up against it so much and find a way to sort of like live alongside of it and um, accept what had happened to me. I think one way I kind of phrased it in my mind was like, well, you know, what what makes protracted withdrawal so much worse, I think, in the minds of people who have it is that it was preventable. Like it didn't have to happen. But I think of something like I could have been in a really horrible car accident or, you know, I could have been in a house fire and had third degree burns or, you know, and I still would have had this thing that was sort of out of my control too contend with, you know, people have bad things happen all the time that they sort of have to live with and become a part of their life. So I tried to kind of frame it for myself in that way, like it was another sickness or injury or something.
1: And so I think it's really important because I, and I'm going to try and get as much out of you that I can in terms of your insights, because I meet a lot of people who are still really angry, you know, very bitter, very upset. Um, You know, these doctors, you know, they need to be held accountable. How could this happen? What a disgrace. I mean, they're filled with rage and um, I get where they're coming from. Like you said, it was completely preventable. And the thing is, once, once this happens to you, you actually realize that, the medical institution is corrupt. And I also think that makes people upset as well that these people who we want to help us uh, you know, aren't, aren't doing it. So moving through that anger to a place of living with it, what for many people that's easier, easier said than done. What, what else could you share about letting go of that um, and just realizing that maybe that wasn't so helpful
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in some instances, at least in mine, the the rage was also physiological. It was part of the withdrawal. So Mm -hmm. some of it you just have to kind of sit with and deal with because it's part of the process. Like it just happens um, in the same way that you know, like skin burning happens. It's something that's sort of out of your control. But once you sort of start healing a little bit more. I think some of the physiological rage and anger kind of dissipates and then you're just sort of left with, you know, being pissed at the injustice of what's happened. I don't know. I just have this vivid memory of my dad telling me when I was going through this and I was so angry, like anger will destroy you in the same way that those pills did kind of. And I thought about that and was like, you know, he's right. Like, And it's not, it's not solving anything for me to be this, this angry and pissed. And so I guess I sort of took it and channeled it into something that would make a difference. Like I I got involved in advocacy and I was like, well, I mean, all I can do is to try to make it better so that it doesn't happen to other people. And I guess I also thought about like, that the, the doctor's in some sense are kind of victims too, of a system that's just broken. You know, they're educated improperly. There's this gap in medical knowledge. Like, I don't think my doctor intended to do this to me and to harm me. And so I had to sort of kind of come to some place of forgiveness. Uh, You know, it's not that, what she did to me was unforgivable. I think the unforgivable part where people have a right to be angry is when you try to educate the doctor and they refuse to learn, you know, from what you're saying, but just the general making the mistake in the first place. I just, I just think she didn't know any better, you know?
1: How long did it take you to get there?
0: Probably a couple of years, I would say. I mean, the first year was just like unbridled rage. And I had thoughts that I won't say on the the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really bad, horrible, disgusting things. And I mean, I would lay there and just like write nasty letters to her in my mind just over and over again. Like the things I wanted to say. Uh but I never like actually wrote it. I kind of made a deal with myself. Like when you're better, you can contact her and say what you want to say. But I wanted it to come from a place that I knew was like my own genuine emotions and not like colored by my physiology being disrupted.
1: Did you ever write that letter?
0: Not yet. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, and It sounds like part of the forgiveness and maybe letting go of the anger was that you had to go on a journey of understanding what had happened to you. Because I think until you understand, you know, how does this happen to me? How does this happen to all the people online? I think until you understand that it can be hard to, to know that I guess, yeah, it wasn't personal really. It, like you said, it is a, serious problem with the corruption of the medical institution by the pharmaceutical industry. So I don't know, does that ring true to you that there was a lot of learning about what had happened before you could forgive your doctor in a way?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Well, a part of it too might've been just that I was a practicing PA before this happened. And so like, I could also put on the hat Mm -hmm. of saying like, I could, this could have happened to me, you know, like I could have been responsible, not, maybe not with psychiatric drugs because where I worked, we didn't really prescribe those, but a, a fluoroquinolone or, you know, like anything I've learned so much from this injury, um, that I didn't know when I was practicing medicine too. So, you know, just thinking of framing it and thinking about it in that way as well. But yeah, understanding what had happened to me. I mean, some people I meet in the withdrawal world are kind of in denial of what's happened or they're confused, I think they they still are not sure if it's the drug fully or how much of it is their underlying condition versus the medication injury. But I never had a question. Like I knew with 110% certainty that, that it was the medications. So there wasn't a lot of questioning for me with that.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe that's, I think it's, I'm glad you touched on that. Because yeah, you know, there's that denial phase. And I've kind of loosely thought about retracted withdrawal as kind of a grieving process in a way. And and so there I know that I think it's the Elizabeth Kubler Ross model five stages of grieving of, mm-hmm. you know, denial, anger, bargaining, um, depression, and then acceptance. And not everyone goes through all the stages, not all of them happen in that sequence. But I I think it's a, a loose outline of, of how people deal with terrible things that happen to them. And so usually the first stage is accepting the diagnosis. And I think that comes up with, um, denial and because when something like this happens, you know, you've got akathisia, it's severe, what the hell is happening to me? Do I have multiple sclerosis? and you go and you start seeing all the doctors and they say, you know, we can't find anything that's wrong with you. Like if you're really unlucky, they tell you it's a functional neurological disorder, essentially you're a hysterical person. And this is just your mental illness manifesting as physical symptoms. And they just send you away to a psychiatrist. Um, and so is that, yeah, I'm, You know, I know I've seen it a lot, but maybe share with the audience, like what do you see from all the people that you've helped at the beginning? What do they go through um, when they're on on the journey to kind of accepting the diagnosis and being like, hey, this is what's happened to me?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the medical community and all their ignorance, you know, doesn't make it easier for people because a lot of people go to their physician trying to get an answer for why this is happening and they'll be, you know, gaslit or told that's not possible or it's the return of their underlying condition. I knew that wasn't true. So I, I mean, that just kind of added to my rage that I couldn't find anybody who believed me essentially. But I think some people who aren't as clear as I was kind of, you know, draw that process out uh, by believing some of that stuff that their doctors tell them, or maybe they want to believe it because if it's something that you can control, then it's easier. If it's not this protracted injury that doesn't have an answer, but time, then, you know, I see people sometimes like clinging on to things like that because they want something that you can take a pill for, or, you know, that has a clear treatment. Um, -hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. I think I've, I've literally had people in my visits saying, I will not accept this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. This is not something, you know, because, because there is something that, that can be done about this, like those exact words. And it's been really painful, you know, when they've had a drug injury and they just say, I cannot accept this. And I mean, oftentimes it leads to, I guess what i mean you may loosely call the bargaining phase but at least in protracted withdrawal injury what i see is the it's kind of like the supplement phase or you know the mm. stem cell therapy phase there, there's there's a period in there after this happens where it where it's such a terrible thing that's causing so much pain i see a lot of people just say you know there must be something that i can do to help with the symptoms or you know accelerate my recovery and um, and then I get a lot of questions about supplements and, and things like that. And mm-hmm. NAD plus, you know, um, sometimes do I have mold? Do I have Lyme disease? You know, they, they end up kind of accumulating more fringe diagnoses. Maybe some of them are right. But a lot of the times I've seen them, they just treatment doesn't really make a difference. And so did you go through a similar phase? Nicole, of being like, hey, could this be something else? Could this be something like that a supplement could help? Um, yeah. Yeah. What was your experience with that?
0: I think my denial was more around like when I first went on Benzo Buddies and saw people were saying that they were still sick at like five, six, seven years. And I was like, Mm, no, it can't be, you know? And so I sort of like created a narrative in my head that, well, these are, you know, psychiatric meds. So I bet you those people are just like true psychiatric patients or something. And they, you know, they think they have something, but it's really, so that that's kind of the denial that I had at first. Um, but I I never really had the sort of supplement phase. I mean, I think I remember like a bunch of us in one of the groups were like eating sardines one time or something, you know, like thinking we could take like fish oil or, you know, whatever, stuff like that. But I was aware pretty quickly that, you know, if if a synthetic chemical caused this, I did not think it was there, like a new one was going to get me out of it. Um, that didn't make sense to me. Like, I'm going to take some other drug with all these risks and it's going to somehow like reverse it or change it. And I knew from reading online, you know, that supplements had risk and stuff. And so I never really went down that rabbit hole. I was too scared uh, to add things to my system, but I've seen, you know, countless people do it. I've answered the emails of people who things and had setbacks and reactions to them. So um, yeah, people are out there kind of doing it, trying it and desperately looking for, you know, some, some magic bean. I'll just say like in the 14 years or so that I've been around and sort of interacting with people, I've never, like there isn't one thing that I can list off in this interview where I'm like, this really helps people and protracted withdrawal because I don't think it exists, honestly.
1: What do you think? um, I mean, there's a few things that come into mind. One, like in a way, I wonder if it's in some ways going on that journey and looking for, hey, there could be this thing, like whether it's or, or some other treatment oh. out there.
0: I did try that... that. I forgot to mention that. It was like in the first three okay. months before I reinstated. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't work.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. So there's things out there and, and sometimes – that hope I think can carry people forward and give them strength. And, and oftentimes I think getting through this stage of like, Hey, maybe there's something can be really difficult because after you accept that there's nothing apart from time, that's a really depressing place to arrive. And, and, and it's almost like a place of feeling hopeless and powerless It feels like that it's not it really isn't but i know it feels like that uh frequently and so i'm thinking out loud here nicole but maybe you can jump in i mean how do you get to that place where you stop looking for the the quick fixes and and the shortcuts out of it i know you mentioned you thought about the physiology of it hey you know if this is a brain injury it's unlikely that you know there's going to be a perfect little key that's Going to do it, but do you have any other thoughts on? Uh, well, I know a lot of it's actually personal experience. People will just try numerous things and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll have like a window and they'll be like, Oh, I had this supplement and now I have a window. And then they'll rave about it and then they'll get hit with like a wave and they'd still be taking the supplement. And then they're just going, Well, maybe it wasn't that. Yeah. And so maybe it's trial and error. Is there anything else in there that you see that kind of nudges people along to to kind of I guess give up on those things.
0: I think it's just time, and like you said, trying things and and seeing for yourself like some people just really need to prove to themselves that there's nothing else. I just hate watching people kind of waste money and uh, and also expose themselves sometimes to things that actually make them worse, you know, in that quest for. An out, but all we all we have otherwise is anecdote. You know, people writing and saying this harmed me. Um, but there are some people who say like something genuinely did help. I know you have patients um, who say like they wouldn't have survived protracted withdrawal if they couldn't use cannabis. You know, to sleep or something like that. So. I don't want to take everything away from people, but you know, then there's the people who use cannabis and they put themselves into a horrible setback that lasts, you know, six months or a year or two. So, you know, taking those supplements and things aren't, it's not without risk.
1: Yeah. That's a good point. I want to clarify things. Um, if if you're taking a supplement and it's helped you and that's, that's great. I mean, that, I don't want to take away from that. But what I will say is that I've seen people recover from this without any supplements mm-hmm. oftentimes. and also without any dietary changes, you know, people have recovered eating all of the gluten and dairy out there as well, um, because it just follows that general trend. So if you've found something that's helpful for you, uh, that that's great. But I guess my position on that is it, it these things aren't a necessity for recovery. Yeah,
0: yeah, I know a guy who recovered from horrible akathisia and protracted withdrawal after it was like three and a half years. And he chain smoked cigarettes the entire time and ate like McDonald's every day. He okay. had a heart attack after, yeah. <laughs> but you know, he still healed from protracted. So, okay. yeah.
1: Um, so another thing I wanna ask you about, I guess, in the Kubler-Ross model, there's this stage called depression, and I can think of numerous of my pa- numerous patients of mine who are here, and their family members grieving the loss of their life and the, the the hopelessness of their situation, and the pain and the disruption that it's caused. Could you tell me about your experience? Do you look back on your suffering, and or maybe it's still going on sometimes? I'm not sure. And is there a stage in there where you were just in the pits where you're just like, woe is me. My life is over like, and really grieving and being kind of stuck in that pit of sadness of why even go on.
0: Oh yeah. I mean all the time, you know, I I've cried more tears in the last 14 years, like for enough for a lifetime, you know, but it it would come like in waves. I think like it wasn't all day, all the time. Because I don't think I could have survived if I allowed myself to just sort of stay in that grieving state constantly. It would just come and then I would cry and just sort of get through it or talk to somebody about it. And then, I mean, I had something that I did, which I would like visualize taking the thing that I would think about. that was like an intrusive thought that was just too much for me to bear, like, you know – Um, that I had to sell my house or that I was probably never going to have kids because of this, you know, like really heavy things. And I would like imagine sort of putting that in a box and just like putting it in the closet on a shelf. And like, I'm just, I'm not going to go there today because I just had limited energy for surviving and everything I was going through, I needed to be able to – like get through the days and suffer um, and survive it. And if I let myself kind of go too deep into the grief, it was like just too much.
1: To be honest with you, I have to say, helping people with the grief is probably one of the hardest things that I do in my work with these, uh, with protracted withdrawal patients. It As much as I, you know, I want to help them, there's just this, immense heaviness that 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 comes with sitting in severe pain and sadness and and so i wanted to ask you how um how do you support people uh when they're in this phase because this phase can go on for a long time i mean what's the approach of helping people with Uh, this immense sadness
0: yeah i think some of it is just like letting them talk about it you know like get it out sharing your own experience with them so they know that you know they're they're not alone i mean something about just knowing that you know um other people have gone through this too and that they've had all of the losses and things as well and that they're okay you know i mean i know you bring up a lot chris page in your uh talks when you talk about like coming through on the other side and like being happy and um you know, getting your life back and stuff. And he's a prime example of that. So just kind of like future oriented fantasy, you know, dangling the carrot for them, like that good life, uh, even in spite of all the losses is kind of waiting on the other side of this. If you can kind of just hang in there and get to it, that kind of stuff.
1: Um, and in your in your case, Do you feel like grief was like a set period of time? Was it like, yeah, years two to seven, you know, I was in grief or was it just something that kind of just came up every now and then maybe more at the start and has kind of petered out over time?
0: No, I mean, I still think I'm grieving losses, you know, I mean, maybe because I had like really thick anhedonia too. It was kind of easier in some instances, like I couldn't feel at some time. So that actually was a symptom that served me. And then at other times, it was like the floodgates opened and I couldn't not feel, you know, it was just like these extremes of, you know, just like, intense grief and sadness and crying. And then other times just feeling like completely and totally numb. But I I mean, I still grieve things now, like invitations to things. A friend invited me the other day to go to like some Taylor Swift thing on a boat, you know, and I'm like, oh, I would love to go to that, but I don't feel like it's something that I could manage. And so when I have to turn down things that I want to do that I'm not ready for, I still get, you know, little twinges of like FOMO and missing out and sadness about, you know, experiences that I could have had that I still have to say no to. So I think the grief thing is a process. And, you know, sometimes I worry that I put so much in that box that I shoved on the shelf just to cope and survive that maybe when this is over, then I'll have like a big thing to deal with down the line, you know. But I don't know. I mean, there's so many people I know who get through it and they're just like you just kind of accept the losses because the the healing and recovery feels so freaking good that you're just like whatever. I'm just happy to have arrived at this place and so I'll just accept the losses and just get on with it. You've lost so much life already. They just kind of want to start living again, I think.
1: So you mentioned um, uh, with the grieving process, a really core component is company, uh, social support, being able to let it all out, you know, all of the feelings just, and not to be alone with the pain sometimes hearing from other people going through it as well. So, you know, you're not alone. What was your community? Like, what was it like with your dad? What was it like with your family and friends and people online? How did you sort of rally, rally your community to support you through that sadness?
0: Yeah. I mean, really the only family member I had was my dad and In the first year or so, I think I leaned really heavily on him. It was like kind of a growing pains of us sort of figuring out like how we were going to manage this crisis. And I would lean on him constantly. I mean, I have a memory of me calling him and he's in the hospital operating room and I can hear like beep, beep, you know, in the background. And I'm like, I think I'm going crazy. You know, I'm like, and he's trying to support me like in the middle of surgery, you know, and I kind of quickly figured out, like, this isn't sustainable. Like, I can't – I'm not going to be able to just use my dad only for all of this because the I was in crisis constantly, you know. He let me know pretty early on too, like, I can't stop my life to sort of sit with you and be with you 24-7. Like, you're going to have to kind of figure out how you're going to get through this. And, you know – that's kind of when i found the groups and started you know plugging into the existing supports that were out there um that's one thing people ask me a lot like how did you find withdrawal friends and i i don't know i mean i just kind of joined the groups and started communicating with people i had all day you know so i was like online constantly and i think you just like. Join a Zoom group where you can see other people's faces and you can kind of see like who your people are going to be once you kind of start to get to know people or somebody posts in a group and uh, the post kind of resonates with you. And then maybe you private message them and you guys just get chatting with one another. And over time, these relationships just develop into, you know, like really deep, meaningful friendships where you have people to call 24 seven, like people who will answer your phone call and help you through these, you know, multiple mini crises that are just sort of like spread out through the days, you know?
1: When you, when your dad had to pull back um, at the start because it was too much for him, mm-hmm. was that, were you angry at him?
0: I was angry in general. <laughs> And I was pissed at him a little bit just because he was my dad, and I wanted him to fix it. I wanted him to save me, you know, and he couldn't. And so I think on some level, like, I hated him for that, because I just wanted him so badly to to fix it. I mean, he's a doctor, he's my dad, like, make it better. And he couldn't, you know, but in, you know, like, in the grand scheme, no, once, once I sort of got like we together figured out how this was going to work and that I realized, okay, he's my in-person person. person. So if I need something, you know, somebody to bring me groceries to the house or somebody to pick up my laundry and take it, like he's the one that I'm going to use. And I don't want to burn him out because I need him to be available to me in the times where I do need things, tangible things in person. Like, but then for all the emotional stuff, I can use these people all over the country that, you know, are going through this too. And they also have like way more patience for it than my dad did and way more understanding as well because they were either living it or had lived it and recovered from it. So it just made more sense to use them more for the support emotional side of things than my dad who you know, it was like never had a panic attack in his life. So how could he help me through this physiological disruption that he's never experienced?
1: Was this was this arrangement something that you had to kind of talk with your dad about? Or was it something that sort of naturally happened when you just realized? Maybe the, you know, the You know the time constraints that your dad had working maybe his limitations emotionally to kind of support you like how did how did you reach a a good arrangement with your dad where you're like this is working now and i've got this emotional stuff over there
0: yeah i mean it was like a year and a half or two years that were kind of touch and go you know at the first year i lived with my grandmother actually and that arrangement kind of wasn't working um she was not the best support. She was elderly, you know, it just wasn't great. And I could tell that she didn't want to do it anymore. And I think she voiced to my dad that it was just too much for her. So I moved into a, an apartment, uh, by myself, but it was very close to my dad, you know, a few minutes away from his house. So we kind of just set it up where I was going to be alone now, but he was, you know, within five minutes car ride of me. And, um, yeah, I was kind of like, just not given a choice. Like you're going to have to sort of do this and figure it out. We're here, but I have to go to work. I have to, you know, continue my life. I can't, I think the conversation went something like, I can't sink my ship alongside of yours because then I'm like u- useless to you if I'm also sunk, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, this, this phase of depression, I think of just coming to terms with it. I, I mean, there's a big part of it. And I'm just assuming here because I, you know, I've, I've kind of studied your life in, in some ways and I know your involvement in the community and how much you've contributed, like, I mean, it's getting through the depression. It's like, it's almost like you have to rebuild a life, it seems while you're hurt, you know, you have to rebuild friends, because your other friends, they don't really get what's going on. So you have to find new friends, Mm -hmm. you know, new relationships with people, you know, new things to spend your time on. I mean, is that, is that the process of kind of fighting, fighting off the sadness is finding these distractions and building a a life that you can live while still in a lot of pain and hurt. I, I don't know. Does that ring true to you?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think I consciously like thought, Oh, I'm built rebuilding my life, but it kind of just happened because I needed to be distracted. If I wasn't plugged in and distracted and doing something with my brain constantly, I really felt like I couldn't cope with how bad I felt. So just in the process of distracting myself, I created purpose every day by plugging into the community and volunteering. And then I think for me, the withdrawal support friendships that I made were just non negotiables. Like I wouldn't have survived if I hadn't made those connections with people. But everybody has like a different. I think withdrawal exists on a spectrum of severity. There's some people who don't need as much of that. And there's other people who need it very, very badly and they wouldn't survive without it. And probably everything in between too. So.
1: So when, you know, I can think about some of our uh, patients and things like that, but when you have someone who's in this phase of sadness and they're just kind of coming to terms with it, what, what are you coaching them to to focus on to kind of uh, survive this phase?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, distraction is huge. And maybe, you know, like in real world when people are having problems, I don't know that the, the way that we talk about getting through stuff is the same. I think in withdrawal you have to do something completely different, which is like kind of avoid thinking about those things as much as possible, where maybe in like traditional therapy, they try to like work through it and talk about it more. But, um, you know, sometimes just getting your mind onto something else other than hyper focusing on, you know, the losses and all of that, um, is a technique talking about it with other people, um, you know, allowing people to just cry and, um, accept that like yeah this sucks and i've had horrible horrible losses um like i said just sort of redirecting people into what the future can look like um and why it's worth it to hang on and keep going in spite of you know all of the horrible feelings that they're having right now just that it's temporary you know and that it will get better
1: was that struggle for you to to arrive at the place where you were like, I'm not gonna try and take my life again. Because I have so many people that turn up and they're just like, I'm this close, you know, mm-hmm. constant suicidal thoughts every single day. Like, what w- is it? was there anything that kind of pushed you to the point where you're like, I'm not gonna do this anymore, I'm making it through the other end, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I never really wanted to die is the thing. This, the first suicide attempt was just I didn't want to suffer anymore, but I desperately wanted to live. I mean, I was in the emergency room saying, like, please don't let me die. I was begging the doctors to help me. You know, I wanted to be alive, but it was just the suffering was so inhumane that it just felt incompatible with life, you know. um. But, yeah, there was some sense after that of, like, Uh, I think it was Matt Samet, who's another benzo survivor. In one of the interviews he did, he said like, no, it was in in As Prescribed, the movie. He's like, I I didn't want to let those MFers win, you know? So there was also some sense of like, I'm not going to be the dead person who all the people in my life who don't understand this are like posting around on the internet like, oh, she had mental illness and like donate to the suicide hotline, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, no way. Cause that's not the truth. That's not what happened, you know? So some of that was also motivation, but just to like believing the people who went ahead of me, I started seeing people recover in front of my own eyes and like really actually believing that that was possible and then planning like what could be my life after this. Even though there's this like dark hole of loss and like no productivity and like, you know, not how I envision my life, like there's still time left to live. And so I just started like fantasizing about what it could be like to be better, I think, and what I want to do. Um,
1: and you know, I kind of sprung the sort of expanded topic on you on the start of this. But initially, when I had asked Nicole to join me, we were going to do a talk just about how to not burn out your support system. And we've kind of touched on a few of those things now, but I think it might be good to just hit this head on. Um, Let's talk about that. Um, What I'll hand it over to you, how how do you want to begin this, begin this talk, we've touched on a few things, but the maybe talk about the importance um, that like, like how you how you don't burn out your support system.
0: I think communication is huge. And just you know like like i said it took me and my dad like a year and a half two years to kind of figure out what was going to work but communicating with each other like honoring each other's boundaries if possible i know that's hard to do when you're like really sick and desperate but Um, One thing I really tried to focus on was just like spreading my misery out. Like I realized I was miserable. I was like human repellent, you know, like nobody wanted to be around me. But uh, it was like, if I didn't just dump it all on one person, even the withdrawal people, you know, have boundaries and limits of what they can handle because they're also suffering. And so if you have 10 or 15 withdrawal friends is kind of just like spacing out how much you're leaning on somebody. Um, But we talked about my dad, you know, like I kind of quickly figured out that I was going to save him for like the important practical in-person things. um, And then use my withdrawal support people for more of the emotional stuff. Um some of it too like I see in people that I coach this and I had it too like this obsession with sort of trying to get the people in your real life to understand what it's like or what happened to you and I think that can be a mistake and actually like contribute to burning out the people who are your caregivers just like constantly sending them articles like talking about nothing other than withdrawal nonstop trying to just like prove that this is real or this is happening or how bad it is. Um, You know, just think about like when you're a normal, healthy person and just change the topic to anything else, you know, like some other disease or illness, like how exhausting it would be to only hear about that thing over and over and over and over again from somebody like, you know, you know, So talk to the people in withdrawal who are obsessed with withdrawal and want to talk about it constantly, but like your real life people don't want to hear about it 24 seven constantly, you know, and they're probably never going to fully understand what it's like, even if you try and try and try and try to explain and can, you know, convince them of of what it's like they're just they're not going to fully ever grasp like the texture of it they can try they can get to a certain point but without living it you know um on that same note like i don't know i remember my dad one time came over and he had like a heel spur or something or no it was a kidney stone and he was like oh man it hurt so bad and i didn't sleep for for a night and I kind of fired off back at him, like, we'll try five years of like agony and not sleeping, you know, <laughs> and it was kind of an asshole move on my part, you know, like doing that because he's still human. And like, that sucked having a kidney stone, I'm sure, you know, but I see other people that I coach kind of doing that to their husband or you know, somebody in their life who's trying to support them. And it kind of like just um, makes it more difficult for everybody. So if you can kind of like hold back on some of that stuff and call one of your withdrawal friends and complain that your husband has a kidney stone and he's moaning about not sleeping for one night, you know, but don't do it to him if he's the one supporting you kind of thing, like, you know, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I imagine that's probably pretty hard. Um, I don't know. Yeah, what you're saying, it makes total sense to me, but I know that can be really hard for people going through it because they are all consumed with withdrawal. And that's all that's on their mind all the time, And especially if they're on the forums and they're looking at supplements and they, you know, they're going to want to talk to their spouse or their person about it. But it needs to stop in many cases. It needs to be, you know, what would I talk about with like a normal normal person? Because otherwise it's just it's gonna to be too taxing on them yeah. on them. Yeah.
0: I think it's kind of the responsibility of both parties though. Like it's not only on the sick withdrawal person to Sort of change things and, like, be conscious of what they're doing and saying, like, the caregiver also has to get educated and, um, you know, realize, like, if you are – if you're saying all the wrong things all the wrong – all all the time – you're actually making your caregiver job harder because you're going to just trigger the person in withdrawal and you're going to have conflict constantly. So if you, as the caregiver can take on some responsibility of like getting educated and figuring out like what helps the person that you're caregiving for, then that can make the relationship better as well. There's a, an article or a, a concept, I guess, called the ring theory. I don't know if you've read it. It was written by like two psychologists. And I give that a lot to people like families that I'm coaching. And the the concept is there's rings and at the center ring is the person in crisis, which would be the person in withdrawal. And then the people closest to them. So maybe their parents or their husband, you know, in the ring out right outside, and then people further away or in outer rings and the concept is that you know the person in the center ring can you know you're supposed to dump outwards and bring comfort in and so if everybody can kind of have that in their minds um as they're going through this i mean you're not always going to do it perfectly obviously we're all just people trying to manage something really really difficult but It's like, is the thing I'm about to say, like bringing comfort in inward in the rings um, and dumping out. So I try to tell people who are caregivers, like, you you probably shouldn't be complaining to the person in severe withdrawal about how their injury is affecting you negatively because they already have enough that they're dealing with just trying to cope and survive, but you can complain about how their illness is affecting you negatively to somebody outside of the situation, you know, in a ring outside of you. So call your support system. So caregivers need their, they have to get busy and get a support system too. You know, it's not just the person in withdrawal who needs to find support. I think the caregivers need to as well.
1: What do you want every caregiver or someone with severe protracted withdrawal to kind of hear? I know you touched on one thing, which was you know dumping outward, not inwards, you know the the complaints what What else could they do to get educated and to have the best sort of mentality to support their injured person?
0: Yeah, I mean just you know, I think caregivers have to take care of themselves. They have to have good boundaries. Um, They have to have their own support system. They definitely need to get educated on this. You know, there's so much information out there that, you know, they can just go and read or listen to videos and kind of just try to understand the best of their ability, what the person is going through. I mean, what I see most is sort of like this tough love mentality. And my dad had it too in the beginning, like, Oh, if I'm just kind of like mean to her or like tell her to snap out of it, like she'll just stop this, you know, and caregivers need to know, like, it's not, they aren't doing this on purpose. Why would somebody fake this or give up their life and just watch everything around them fall apart and crumble? And, you know, just do that for no reason. Like they can't help it. It's it's a physiological thing going on inside of their body and they're doing the best that they can. And uh, maybe, I don't know what you think about this, Yosef, but it's like, maybe because it's a psych med, it's harder to kind of have empathy for it because it has this sort of stigma around it. Whereas if your loved one was kind of like in a car accident or going through some like legitimate illness, we don't treat people as if we can sort of tough love them out of it. But I see it so much in the withdrawal community where family members just, you know, kind of think like, oh, you know, just get it together. Stop acting like this.
1: I think it could definitely be a part of that. Um another thing that comes to mind and I've been guilty of assuming this as well is people with protracted withdrawal have periods where they look pretty good and they'll they'll talk to you. They'll be very coherent, you know, they'll be very rational they'll look good sometimes they'll even smile and they'll look like it's okay for a minute and then and you think they're well you think they're a lot healthier than they are because it's just like well hang on a second i just saw you and you're doing well and this and that like why are you so disabled you know why are you so you know why are you having so many problems and i think the only way they can really understand um that yeah you know that's what it can look like sometimes but uh inside you know it's a roller coaster it feels very different um and difficult and so i mean that's what i its one of the things that i'm proud of with the channel actually that that i've put together is that people can come and they can hear stories from people who have been hurt because then they don't just think it's their loved one being dramatic or over hyping things they could be like oh my god this lady just described the exact same thing that you did, you know, and how long it took her to recover. I think that gives people the perspective because this is, um, I mean, it's a neurological injury and it's not missing a limb or having some crazy rash or something like that. It's, it kind of exists within the mind um, and then the brain. So I think that can be really hard as well. Just how normal people look sometimes with this.
0: Well, and we fake it really well too, you know? I mean, after seven years of kind of like laying in a bed by myself, I desperately wanted to participate in things. But, you know, I can – when I started plugging back into the world a little bit, I could get myself together for an hour, you know, and go have dinner at my dad's house or something. So, But that's all they're seeing is that one hour of me just sort of – you know, holding it together, it was still really, really difficult. But I was sort of making myself and then I would go home and just collapse from fatigue and, you know, the the sort of fallout from forcing myself to do stuff. But nobody's around to sort of witness that, you know. The other part is, you know, if we're asking the sick person in withdrawal to you know minimize the amount that they're complaining to their loved ones in person so that they don't burn them out it's kind of the job of the caregiver then to not assume that well they're not complaining or talking about it anymore so they must be better you know it may be just because they realize nobody wants to hear about this anymore like we're on year 7 or 8 or whatever i don't bring it up that much anymore i'm still dealing with stuff but i don't talk about it constantly because i know people don't want to talk about it so Mm -hmm. yeah
1: How, how does that make you feel um holding it in and just kind of knowing that people people are kind of sick of it or you i mean i imagine you feel that way because you sense it from them you know you look at their face and their eyes and you know how they respond to you what what's that like going through where you're just like uh not a receptive audience. How does that feel?
0: Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of used to it at this point. I mean, I do have, yeah, Yeah. I have amazing family and and friends who, you know, will still have conversations with me about it if I really want to, but it's more my decision. Like they probably don't want to hear about this. And I talk about it with, you know, people like you and my withdrawal friends Mm -hmm. enough where it's like, I don't have to, I don't have to bring it up at Thanksgiving you know
1: yeah um how do you approach someone who is burning out their family because they're talking a lot about their pain mm-hmm. all the time and they they it's all that they say what, what's a gentle way to to um to bring up yeah they, they may be burning them out and that it might be time to kind of tone it down a little bit or find other avenues because that's sensitive that's a hard thing to bring up with someone
0: yeah i mean i i think it depends on how uh plugged in the caregiver is i mean sometimes we'll just get on a call with everybody and just kind of lay it all out like how are you feeling and how are you feeling and how can we how can we make this work for everybody because it's not going away tomorrow you know it's going to be a while and so What is it that you need? And sometimes the caregiver will just say like, I just need to like get out of here for a while or I need to, you know, I need more help from folks. And then maybe we'll just start like going through the list of like, well, who do you feel comfortable with that can plug in and be with you if we let your husband go do this on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights and just kind of like really trying to get practical about it. And then I just kind of gently encourage the person going through it to look into the existing resources that are out there. Like, what would it look like for you uh, if we, you know, found you a support group or a Zoom group for you to join? Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to do that? Or, you know, just kind of offering resources and seeing what they think about, you know, trying to, like I said, You know spread your misery around instead of just on one person
1: yeah
0: Yeah.
1: it sounds like funny when you say it but i mean it makes a lot of sense you know spreading the misery Mm -hmm. yeah Um,
0: yeah
1: um i'm gonna segue now to talking about um acceptance and you know at least in the Kubler ross model they say that after you go through the depression phase and you've kind of grieved what's happened to you maybe that there is a stage of acceptance where you know you start to kind of return to life you know maybe the pain is still there but the suffering is less i don't know if that rings true to you at all that there was a stage that went after you the sadness kind of died down that it was easier to live with the pain because i know you still have substantial pain and you have for a long time was Mm -hmm. was there a stage for you where it was just like you know, the pain's still there, but I I think my psychology, you know, my psychology has gotten to a place where it's less distressing for me and it's less impactful on me than it was previously.
0: Yeah. And I think you kind of just get used to living alongside of it for so long. I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. And so I just have my routine and I know what works for me on top of the fact that, you know, people hear my timeline and they freak out. But you have to remember that it it gets better. The trajectory is in in the positive direction, and so I've healed significantly from the most severe years of this. And so that makes acceptance easier as well. When you see, kind of with your own eyes, that you know, I'm still moving in the right direction. I'm still making gains, and you know, that's motivating to kind of keep going and, and following that dangling carrot. But I still have my moments. I mean, I called Baylissa Frederick, who is a well-known coach the other day crying at three in the morning, my time saying, Mm -hmm. are, is it ever going to end? You know? Mm -hmm. So it's not like I, I, still don't have times where I completely fall apart or need reassurance myself, you know.
1: I wonder sometimes, you know, if the the acceptance phase and or part of it is is can sometimes be resuming life. You know, it's like, I'm seriously hurt, you know, but maybe I'm not so hurt that I can't go back to part time work. And that's really terrifying, but I'm going to do that because I have a lot of patients in that situation and then they do, you know, or they say, well, I need to, I'm going to start helping out this person or or start doing these things. And it's kind of this, like, I'm going to stop raging against the system and, and, and and grieving and I need to just live, you know, and then, and then also that distraction from living and being engaged with people, I think also reduces the suffering because there's more distraction.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you kind of figure out like you push up against the, the, you know, boundaries or whatever of your suffering and you find out like, all right, in this moment or this year, what can I handle? And it may be different from the year before. And you just kind of start testing the waters and seeing like, what can I do? What can I do? You know, I went from having no friends nothing other than my withdrawal community to, you know, branching out. And now I have a friend in my town that has nothing to do with withdrawal, just a new friend that I met and I go for walks with her and lunch and she doesn't even know what happened to me. So, you know, I think you kind of just like evolve slowly and sort of like start taking things back little by little and, and grabbing what little bits of life you can just to move the needle towards normalcy more and more. Um, and you just figure out like what that looks like as you go.
1: How do you get someone who's um, say, you know, they're in a hole, they've been hurt and they're spending all their time just on the online forums and um, cause I always have patients like this as well. And then I, You know, I wonder that it's not a good distraction and and maybe it's time to find something else because I think they get, you know, often I hear about it, they get really scared and frightened of things that they read online or they say, Hey, you know, this one person said that they tried this supplement and now I need to try that. Do you, how do you move people from there to a more, I guess uh, I'm going to say maybe a healthy way of coping or healthier strategies? Because I don't think it's healthy actually to stay in front of the computer and just in that Mm -hmm. kind of world the whole time. How do you break people out of that?
0: I think it depends on where they are. I mean, you know, I've talked to a lot of parents and caregivers that people are like, all they do is sit on the computer and read about this nonstop, you know? And they're like, that can't be healthy. But at one point, like that is the thing that kept me alive. And if somebody would have tried to take that from me, I think it would have been detrimental. Um, But I also wasn't somebody that was easily freaked out by negativity and stuff online. Like it didn't affect me that badly where it does others where I feel like it could be harmful to their, their ability to cope and heal. So you have to kind of know, what kind of person you are when you're using those resources, you know, is it helping you or is it harming you? For me, it just happened naturally. Like as the healing came, I wanted to be there less. Nobody had to like pry it out of my hands. I just was like, all right, I'm kind of done with this. I don't want to read this shit anymore, you know, all day long. Like I found other things, and I still do withdrawal stuff all day long all the time, but I'm not like obsessively reading other people's stories. Like I'm doing work and I'm, you know, contributing to some of the organizations and stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it just naturally happens.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think one natural way that I've seen it happen for a lot of the people who I'm now lucky enough to call colleagues are they, they they've learned so much about being online they start coaching you know they yeah they start doing free coaching and then eventually they do some paid coaching and then it becomes almost like a cool uh contractor job part-time job that they can do while they're recovering
0: yeah Yeah. or i mean even just like making a youtube channel i see people kind of transition away from being in the groups, constantly obsessed, reading people's posts to like the advocacy role, you know, and educating and sharing their story instead of just sitting in the support groups 24 seven.
1: Yeah. And that's a nice thing as well. I mean, if you're ready to help other people, I think that almost that side of productivity, creativity, um, and also the knowing that you're suffering has meaning and that it is now helping other people, I think can be uh, healthy. I mean, it can be a great thing for your mental health. I mean, all of those things, even if you didn't have protracted withdrawal, make you feel good about your life.
0: Yeah. I mean, people yeah. need purpose. They need something to do. They need to fill up their days, you know, and when you're just kind of sick with this, like you have to get creative and and decide what's that going to look like
1: mm-hmm. well we have covered everything nicole and i think this has been really helpful um and i'm out of questions now so i want to give you an opportunity what haven't we covered what you want to discuss
0: well i i just want to say you know i mean we talked about losses and protracted and burnout how not to burn out your family but I think the real solution here is that if we can get people, you know, before they make these drastic mistakes, like going to a detox center or cutting their dose in half, you're going to need less support. You're going to lose less if you are tapering slowly and properly and listening to your body. Like It doesn't have to be this nuclear bomb that goes off and just destroys everything in a lot of cases so yeah i guess if people are listening and they haven't started yet you know my message is always like just get educated and informed and taper properly so that you don't have to you know face all these horrible realities that some of us do great yeah
1: so i'm gonna bring it to a conclusion um these were some difficult topics that we talked about and Tracted withdrawal is not easy it's really difficult our intention is that hearing about Nicole's journey and our experience helping people through this is that it helps you kind of maybe frame the journey of um, surviving with this and and and, um, and and getting through it so I hope that was helpful and you know Nicole uh, thank you once more for coming on it's always a pleasure um, so yeah thanks
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to work with us, go to taperclinic.com, where you can discover our pressure-tested strategic taper protocol that has helped hundreds safely discontinue their psychiatric medications. And if you want to see the full video interview or more exclusive videos about tapering tips, medication management, and adverse drug reactions, go follow Dr. Yosef on YouTube.